ladies and gentlemen, Bag of Bones has its first ever sponsor. Please be so kind as to welcome Fresh Start Lifestyles Freight Broker Courses. By the time the Los Angeles police showed up to the bungalow on Alvarado Street, the home was bustling with excitement. This was a little after 8 a.m., men packing stacks of paper, people ruffling through closets and drawers, reporters pushing around talking to everyone, the valet pacing the front lawn. The police pushed their way into the small living room and on the floor the cause of the commotion. A man fully dressed, including his sports jacket, was laying still and serene on his back, his hands at his side. Douglas McLean, a neighbor who, after hearing shouts in the adjoining courtyard, quickly got dressed and went to the source. He said that by the time he got there, the house was already full of people. In his statement at the scene, he commented, quote, He looked just like a dummy in the department store, so perfect, so immaculate. He was lying near his writing desk with the chair overturned near his body. As the police took in the scene, another man pushed through the crowds demanding to be let near as he was a doctor. After crouching over the body, but careful not to touch anything, he proclaimed that the man appeared to have perished from stomach hemorrhage. As quickly as he appeared, he seemed to have disappeared again. The police did their best to clear the area in order to do their job, but it seems that the damage had already been done. The scene of the crime had been badly tampered with. As they attempted to move the body, they discovered that he was actually hiding a pool of his own blood. The victim had been shot in the back, six and a half inches below his left armpit. A 38 caliber pistol was used to fire a single shot close enough to leave burn marks on his suit coat. They estimate no more than three inches from his body. The trajectory of the bullet traveled upward from his left side and stopping just at his right collarbone. This was a murder scene. By 10.08 a.m., a telegram had been sent to the newspapers announcing his death. It's February 2nd, 1922, and the victim was William Desmond Taylor, one of Famous Players Lasky, later called Paramount Studios, most famous directors. As this story unfolds, you'll see how the murder of this one man ruined the acting careers of two leading ladies of the silver screen unearthed his past secrets, launched an investigation and speculation that continues today, but also was the final straw that turned Tinseltown into a moral clause. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. Let me take you back to Tinseltown of the 1920s. Prior to the late teens and twenties, Hollywood was just a small town of fig and citrus orchards. With the vision of C.E. Toberman and the movie directors such as Cecil B. DeMille, L.L. Burns, and Jesse Lasky, 
It didn't take long to turn the sleepy orchard into the glittering hub of silver screen stars the world will never forget. Gloria Swanson, Mary Pickford, Gary Cooper, Rudolph Valentino, and Charlie Chaplin all got their starts here. We're still several years away from the talkies, only a couple years away from movies in color, and the nation was still roaring and playing without the slightest notion that the Great Depression was less than a decade from changing the entire script. William Desmond Taylor was on the top of the heap at Paramount Studios, believed to be one of the best directors in the industry. He was known to be the first to put some of the classics on the big screen, such as Huckleberry Finn, Anne of Green Gables, Tom Sawyer, and even Davy Crockett. His directing chops gained recognition around the globe and in all the press. The Dramatic Mirror of November of 1920 says, quote, Mr. Taylor has gained a very particular reputation for human photoplays, plays of real people acting in real ways under different circumstances. He will be particularly remembered for the Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, The Varmint, The Soul of Youth, The Furnace, and a score of other pictures, all of them remarkable for their reality. The reason is not far to seek. For certainly, of all the present-day producers, Mr. Taylor stands foremost in the matter of life experiences. Successively Irish student, Kansas rancher, Klondike miner, construction engineer of industrial projects, actor and director of film features, he has encompassed an unusual segment of human activity. End quote. Mr. Taylor's own life really does read like a movie script. Let me go back just a bit. So these words of praise makes a bit more sense. William Desmond Taylor was actually born in Carlow, Ireland in April of 1872, and his real name is William Cunningham Dean Tanner. He was one of five siblings. His father was a retired British Army officer and his uncle a member of Parliament. He got a proper English education by attending Marlborough College and then, because in short, he got bit by the acting bug. His father banished him to America, Kansas no less, to work on a farm. But the stage called out to him, and soon he made his way to New York. Now this is where his story gets interesting. His Hollywood bio would read all about his adventures. It would say how he owned an antique store, but it was losing money, and then the Klondike gold rush hit. So he made his way to Alaska and made a fortune, only to lose it again. Taylor told this story of, quote, For a while in the Klondike one time, my cabin was entered by a man who calmly announced that he was going to kill me, quoting a certain passages from the Bible as authority. I took down a Bible, showed him where his quotation was wrong, and he forgot all about the killing. Taylor always had a story to tell. He tells of his adventures in Washington as part of a stock theater troupe, off to the Orient, a winter in Honolulu, and then... Just like sliding into home base, he made his way to Hollywood to become an actor, one adventure after another. However, there's a few parts he forgot to mention. Somewhere along the timeline, while living in New York, he met and married Ethel Harrison in 1901. In 1903, he has a daughter, Ethel Daisy. He does run an antique store, but it is owned by his father-in-law, and it is doing quite well. Taylor's spending habits, however, were slowly racking up quite a bit of debt. His brother, in the meantime, Dennis, has made his way over from Ireland and followed in William's footsteps and entered into the antique business. He married as well and became a father of two young girls. In 1908, William Cunningham, Dean Tanner, 
disappears, just walks away from his life. Ethel Dean Tanner, now Robbins, because she married two years after her divorce, never asked him why he left her, just moved on. She says, quote, It was just like a man picking up his hat to leave the house, end quote. He left everything behind, clothes, money, everything. She waited for him to come home until 1912 and divorced him, keeping sole custody of their daughter. Just prior to his disappearance, he attended the Vanderbilt Cup race on Long Island. He drank heavily. His associates recall a, quote, spree that wound up with him staying in Old Continental Hotel on Broadway and 19th. He asked that his office send him $600 immediately. It was delivered to him at the hotel, and he was not seen in New York again. In looking into his financials, it was discovered that he was deeply in debt, owing thousands of dollars. His, quote, habits, especially his extravagances, were held to blame, end quote. Apparently, his brother disappeared from his family as well. William eventually turned up and became the director he is remembered for, but Dennis was never found or claimed his past again. Ethel did find out that her husband was still alive in a most interesting manner. She and her daughter went to the movies, and there on the big screen, in the movie Captain Alvarez, Ethel gasped and told her daughter, quote, that's your father, end quote. Ethel Daisy did reach out to her father by way of Paramount Studios, and they kept in correspondence for the rest of his life. They met briefly in 1921, only once when he was on his way through town, and William made her the sole beneficiary of his will. Now back in our timeline, after he leaves his wife and child, that's when he goes on this Alaskan spree claiming to be mining for gold when actually he was a timekeeper and commissary clerk because it was long after the Klondike gold rush. And then, somehow, he shows up in a hospital in San Francisco, sick and broke, a shadow of his former self. He ran into the wife of one of his old New York friends, Eleanor Gordon, who was an actress. They set him up with some spending money and a place to stay in Los Angeles, and when he was feeling better, they found him some acting jobs. This was in 1913. By 1914, this turned into a directing gig with his first film, The Awakening. And the rest, as they say, is history. In July of 1918, near the end of World War I, after a final plea for all able-bodied men, he enlisted in the British Army as part of the Expeditionary Force as a private. He promoted all the way to Major of the Royal Fusiliers before returning home in May of 1919 with honors from the Motion Pictures Directors Association. His skills and reputation grew as he found a home in the movie industry. He was bestowed with the honor of being named President of the Screen Directors Guild. With this position, he was able to speak out on behalf of his fellow directors and to his craft. He helped to find a standard in everything from the music the story, and how it was important to base the movie on the actual story, book, or short story. But it was a turbulent time, and most people don't realize the lives that were lost because of the decadence of the time period. It really was the era of Anything Goes, and many lost their lives because of the rampant spread of dope, which collectively referred to morphine, cocaine, heroin, and opium. William Desmond Taylor gave the eulogy at one such memorial service that honored five Hollywood luminaries, Olive Thomas, Robert Herron, 
Frank Elliott, Clarine Seymour, and Ormer Locklear. Each of these artistic souls was taken from the earth too soon from chemical abuse. For it being the middle of prohibition, alcohol flowed, and opium was the drug of choice. Life magazine printed this headline in March of 1922, quote, The moving picture colony in California seems determined to turn itself sin-side out, end quote. And it was actually due to the murder of William Taylor that Hollywood put its foot down, saying, That's enough. In addition to the memorial service they had two years prior, additional scandal was brought down on the motion picture studios with Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle trials, the death of Thomas H. Ince, who was one-third of Triangle Motion Picture Company, that was later to become Sony Pictures, Wallace Reed, Barbara Lamar, and Gene Eagles. This string of deaths and misconduct prompted Hollywood Studios to begin writing contracts with morality clauses, allowing the dismissal of actors, directors, or crew who breached them. The case of William Desmond Taylor, formerly known as William Cunningham Dean Tanner, has never been solved. So we could, in effect, close our story here, as his life lived was a peculiar one, but that would be doing you a disservice, because this is just the tip of the iceberg. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or Type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. The story of the unsolved murder of William Desmond Taylor begins on February 1st, 1922. A couple of things were happening in the life of our William that we should take note of. Number one, he has confessed to his very close friend Arthur Hoyt that he is concerned about a young protege he's directed in more than one movie has fallen in love with him. He is concerned because she is quite adamant and quite bold with her declarations, 
to the point of coming over to his home late in the evening and threatening to scream if he makes her leave. Number two, we have a former valet that has forged checks out to over $5,000. This is not accounting for inflation, stolen items and pawned them and is threatening some kind of exposure if Mr. Taylor does not pay money. Or this has already transpired, I'm not really sure. He wrecked two of the director's cars while he was out of town and just a whole lot more. Number three, he has fallen in love with a movie star, but she is addicted to opium and cocaine. He says he's tried everything to get her off the addictive drug, and that includes probably the earliest case of movie star intervention. He took her to a sanitarium to get clean, and she does, but then falls right back into it, prompting Taylor to not only call out her dealers and tell them that she's not buying anymore, but also reaches out to authorities. She is also an actress and is rumored to spend over $2,000 a month to its addiction. That's not today's cost either. By the way, with inflation, that brings it around to $18,000 a month. And finally, number four, he has the mother of the love-struck child threatening him on a regular basis. Now, that's enough to keep any man busy, not to mention running back-to-back -back movies, the regular gossip of the industry, the bickering, backstabbing, and vying for key projects, and the newspaper industry watching their every move. The leader of this heap would be William Randolph Hearst, the largest of the publishing dragons who made millions by selling his papers using controversial headlines featuring the crime, corruption, and gossip, tying it all together with the biggest names in Hollywood. Let's just say he never ran out of headlines to write. The publishing industry was pretty brutal on Hollywood and the police department as more and more time went by and no suspects were arrested in relation to the murder of William Taylor. They mocked the press openly and it has made headlines for over 40 years. In February of 1922, the Miami Herald writes, quote, Great progress has been made in solving the Hollywood murder case. The detectives have about decided that Taylor was killed, end quote. And the Des Moines Register fires off, quote, If the late director Taylor were to return and read all the stuff passing as his life history, he would probably fail to recognize himself, end quote. And the police, I'm guessing, because of all the pressure rounded up about a list of 60 suspects. For those who worked closely with him to his neighbors, friends, dance instructors, and gas station attendants. If you delivered Chinese food to the Taylor bungalow, you were a suspect. To this, the Syracuse Post Standard on February 15, 1922 blasted, quote, We ought to have a pretty clean sort of country after police get through scouring, sweeping, and combing it for the slayer of a movie director, end quote. The police had little fact to go on, but plenty of sensationalism. The newspaper reporters were investigating right along with the detectives and were not shy about reporting their findings long before fact-checking. Feel free to join me, my fellow armchair detectives, as we narrow things down with a few key cast members that play a vital role in this Hollywood whodunit. First, we have, of course, the current love interest, Mabel Normand. She was a popular comedic actress who was commonly seen sharing the screen with Charlie Chaplin and Roscoe Arbuckle. At some point, Mabel had approached Mr. Taylor to help her cure her addiction. Yes, this is our opium addict. It's rumored that he was deeply in love with her 
and went to the federal prosecutors to testify against the cocaine dealers. Now there's a cause for murder right there, perhaps not by the hand of Mabel Norman, but in her name. A couple more interesting things about our first suspect. She was the last person to see William alive the evening of the murder. She was at his home from 7 o'clock p.m. to 7.45 p.m. She said they had shared an orange blossom gin, she borrowed a book, and left. He escorted her to the car where her chauffeur was waiting and she blew him kisses. He watched the car go round the bend before returning inside. William was found with a locket in his chest pocket bearing the photo of Mabel Norman, a gold pocket watch, a two-carat diamond ring still on his finger, and $78 in his pocket. That's averaging a little over $1,000 in today's value. The other thing about Miss Norman is that she was one of the people in William Taylor's bungalow in the morning of the discovery. Taylor's neighbor happened to be good friends with Norman, and she called her first thing after discovering the murder. Mabel was rifling through his things looking for letters they had exchanged. For clarity's sake, yes, the sources say she was there before police arrived on the scene. She was interrogated several times and was not found a viable suspect. In one of her statements, she said, quote, He said he would phone me later in the evening to see how I liked the book he lent me, but he did not. That was the last time I ever heard his voice. Edna Purveyance told me this morning he was dead. I felt sure it was all some horrible mistake. End quote. Two years later, Mabel was the witness of another crime. Her friend Edna was also at this shooting as well. A shooting of an oil tycoon, Cumberland Dines, by her valet. While the two crimes were not related, Mabel had to appear in court once again. Her career was already on the wane, but this second scandal was all it could take. She would die only eight years later in a sanatorium after a year-long battle of tuberculosis. At his funeral, she sobbed uncontrollably, saying, quote, He was uniformly kind to everyone, end quote. Next, we have former love interest, Neva Gerber. Taylor was engaged to Neva for a few years, but they could not get married because Neva's divorce had not been finalized from her last husband. They separated in 1919, and William began seeing Mabel shortly after. Which, just between us, was probably a good thing because the next two husbands she went on to marry both died prematurely. And if there's anything I've learned from doing these episodes every week, if more than one husband dies, just saying... Neva was not considered a serious suspect in the Taylor murder or in any of the deaths of the men in her life and went on to live until her mid-80s. The other woman in William Taylor's life was Mary Miles Minter. And this child needs an episode all to herself. This poor girl is a mess. She had started working on the stage at age of five. Some say ages of three. Her mother, Charlotte Shelby, was once a stage actress who was unable to break into the movies, but was determined that her children would. Mary was the victim of her mother's ambition. She was born Juliet, but her mother lied about the child's age. In fact, she changed her daughter's name to that of her deceased niece, who was eight years older, in order to get Mary acting jobs in the movies. She was eight years old, passing for sixteen. By the time William Desmond Taylor came into her life, Mary had more than 35 short reels and movies on her resume. She worked relentlessly. She was raised without a father. And at this point, she had already been married, 
forced to have an abortion so as not to ruin her acting career, then her husband was run off. She was only 15. William Taylor was kind to her. They first worked together on Anne of Green Gables, in which Mary Miles Minter played the title role. She fell in love with him, blindly, completely. He was 30 years her senior. She would say, quote, He never by look, word, or deed gave me any reason to doubt any of my ideals that were placed in him absolutely, end quote. Several letters she had written to him were found in his home, and while some of them were able to be taken secretly from the house, many made their way to the newspapers and destroyed her career. The journalist scandalized her relationship with Taylor, but her opinion of him never changed, and she defended his honor at every turn. During any of her interviews with the police, she was very open about her feelings. When they asked if they had an intimate relationship, she told them they had not, that she was the one who initiated everything. When they asked about the letters, she told them, quote, At the time our love first formulated, he said to me, Mary, this is not right. You are May and I am December, and this is not right. I know it is best that we must part. I said, I know that you are many years older than I, but I couldn't love anybody as much as I love you. And we did try to part. We tried again and again, end quote. Or she also said, quote, It was not only a love of sweethearts. I wanted to hold his head when it was aching. I wanted him to tell me his mental troubles, his heart troubles, and let me soothe them away for him as I would for a little child. I forgot the man's age. It meant nothing to me, end quote. During one such interview, which went on for hours and hours, chatting on everything that came into her head, she accidentally, or not, implicated two or three others who ended up coming under the police microscope. One was Julia Crawford Ivers, a director and scenario writer that worked closely with William on several movies, who that Miss Minters disliked. Julia disapproved of Mary's outspoken behavior toward William, and Mary accused Julia of, quote, giving her looks. The two, Julia and William, were considered close friends and excellent working companions. She directed some of William's first movies. She was quickly dismissed as a suspect. She is quoted as making this public statement shortly after his death to the Los Angeles Examiner, quote, Without reservation, I can say he was the man of highest ideals, of noblest thoughts, loyalty and honor with whom I have ever been associated, a man of keen intellect, sympathetic understanding, and unbounded kindness, a truly great man, end quote. The third casualty was Marshall Nealon. He was a director younger than Taylor and more of a flirt than an actual romantic interest, but he was interested in Mary, having asked for her hand and she turned him down proclaiming her love for Taylor. The police were already interested in Neelan as a suspect, and they were curious about their interactions. On February 2nd, the day after the murder, Marshall Neelan took her to an empty studio and confided things to her about the murder, saying that he had heard that Mary had been at his house only a couple days before throwing herself at him in the early hours. Mary explained to the police, saying that Marshall had said, quote, I'm going to tell you some very important things. They are going to hurt you. They are going to shock you. Mr. Taylor and I were talking pleasantly, and Mr. Taylor suddenly started talking about you. Finally, he said that you were undressed in his apartments less than two days ago, that you beseeched him for his love, that he resisted you, and finally persuaded you to leave his apartments. End quote. 
Miss Minter went on to say, quote, I could feel myself grow red, so I said, Is that all you have to tell me? Then proclaimed that Mr. Nealon offered to give more, but she stopped him, saying that, quote, Bill was going insane, end quote. Nealon had a friend from the studio inside the house that morning on February 2nd, confiscating many of the letters Mary had written. Nealon asked that they be returned to her. He told her, quote, I tried to get your letters for you. You know they are a very important factor in this case if they get a hold of them, end quote. In her prattling, she managed to raise suspicions on herself and of fellow director Marshall Nealon, who might be willing to murder Taylor if it could get him out of the way. Side note, after some deeper research, apparently Marshall Nealon was heavy into drug usage too, and William Taylor was making it very difficult for those who wished to continue in this depravity by taking steps to expose the entire drug ring. Also, the police were sitting on a piece of evidence that included three blonde hairs found on William Taylor's jacket that they belonged to Mary Miles Minter, placing her at the scene of the crime. No one really knows if there was a physical affair or not. The letters certainly implied an affair. As she chatted on, and during her deposition, she stated that she knew her love was not returned in the same manner. So, many of the experts who have reviewed the case for years since believe that it was one-sided. While in the life of William Desmond Taylor, it is mentioned that many women were tied to his life, but not one of them, nor Taylor himself, admitted to a physical relationship. Mary Miles Minter was never arrested, but she was harassed all the rest of her days. Rumors were spread that there were handkerchiefs, undergarments, and a pink nightdress with her initials on it implicating an intimate relationship. And at one point, she offered a thousand dollars if anyone could produce these items that supposedly had her initials. No one stepped forward. Finally, in 1937, Minter publicly announced to the Los Angeles Examiner newspaper, quote, Now I demand that I either be prosecuted for the murder committed 15 years ago or exonerated completely. If the district attorney has any evidence, he should prosecute. If not, then I should be exonerated. Shadows have been cast upon my reputation, end quote. After the murder in 1922, Minter was only in four more movies before she retired from the industry. She did get married after turning down many offers throughout the years in 1957 and died in Santa Monica in 1984. She would say, quote, I had always known that this was just an exquisite chapter in my life that must necessarily be a brief one. I couldn't bear to part with it. It was just a beautiful thing that seldom occurs in the world today as I see it, End quote. This brings us to the mother, Charlotte Shelby. If there was anyone in this whole fiasco that has more evidence stacked against her, it would be this woman. In Mary's testimony, she also implicated that her mother was perfectly capable of doing the deed and talked about how she forced James Kirkwood, the father of her child, to disappear by pointing a gun, which happened to be a thirty-eight. There are reports that she also waved the same gun at William Taylor, assuming that her daughter was keeping company with him, only to find out that she was mistaken. She felt the need to protect her child's career at all costs. When it was discovered that she owned a rare thirty-eight caliber gun, she threw it into the Louisiana Bayou on the Shelby property. Because that's not suspicious at all. And it was eventually found and put into evidence. She also left town the day after the murder, claiming that unexpected family business had come up that she needed to attend to. 
She hid out in Europe for three years, terrified of the interrogations from the district attorneys. The most interesting part, and I won't drag you down into the research rabbit hole with me about all of these little details, but the money. They always say, follow the money. And after her death, her accounts show that a lot of money went missing from her accounts. Not stolen, just unaccounted for. Let's just say over $133,000 worth. Two district attorneys flat out declined to prosecute her. Another district attorney on the case, Asa Keys, was convicted and sent to prison for accepting bribes. Buren Fitz was a district attorney that knew Mrs. Shelby socially and announced that the evidence was insufficient for an indictment and recommended that the evidence and case files be retained on a permanent basis. Those files ended up disappearing. And District Attorney Fitz ended up committing suicide with a rare 38 caliber pistol. Shelby's alibi for the night of Taylor's murder was an actor friend, Carl Stockdale. He told investigators that Charlotte Shelby was with him between 7.30 and 9.30 p.m. And now looking back, a payment of $200 per month was discovered in Carl's account from the month of the murder until the day he died. Her two children, Margaret, who was three years older than Mary, both hinted at their mother's guilt. Both children also sued Charlotte Shelby for money they earned that was never given to them. Charlotte, in her own words to the jury, quote, Neither of my daughters have the capacity for thrift. They had nothing of their own except what I gave them, end quote. Shelby was never brought to court to answer questions about the Taylor murder until 1937. At some point when Shelby was being questioned, she was concerned about what her daughters might say. Margaret mocked her in front of the press, saying, quote, Are you afraid I'll bring up the Taylor case? End quote. This was, of course, after her mother had her locked up in a sanitarium to deal with alcoholism. She was especially concerned with her Mary. She confided, quote, All Mary is doing is trying to ruin me, in addition to the financial situation. And after all, she may be lying for herself, end quote. Someone then asked, You don't mean, Mrs. Shelby, that Mary had anything to do with that? And she said, quote, She may have been damned fool enough to have done it, end quote. Freight brokers play an instrumental role in the shipping industry. They ensure that a variety of goods move across the U.S. from one location to another without complication. Demand for freight brokers continues to increase as the industry evolves. Starting a freight brokerage business or maintaining a current one appears to have a positive job outlook for this career. If you've been wanting to break into or excel in the freight broker industry, Fresh Start Lifestyles, has the answer. Call Amanda or Amber to find out how the complete Fresh Start Freight Broker course with certificate can get you started in a new career. Call Fresh Start Lifestyles for more information at 833-373-7475. That's 833-373-7475. Less than a year after Taylor's murder, a third district attorney on the case, Thomas Lee Woolwine, resigned as district attorney and announced, wait for it, he was accepting the position of the executive head of a motion picture organization as reported by the Los Angeles Times. 
It was also brought to light that Woolwine claimed he knew that during the time of the investigation that Sands had been found murdered, but did not bother to mention it, so as to keep the investigation muddled. Sands. Ah, yes, Sands. Edward Sands. I haven't had a chance to tell you about him as yet. This was the valet mentioned earlier that forged the checks and discovered William's past and taunted him with the knowledge. He had sent Taylor a package in December of a pawn slip for William's jewelry and made it out to William Dean Tanner, along with a smug note on the back wishing him a prosperous holiday and whatnot. He was hired on by Taylor, and the two seemed to get along very well. Once Taylor had to go out of town in 1921, that's when Sands did all the damage. By the time Taylor had come back, Sands had disappeared. It turns out he was able to recruit into and desert the Navy three times using different names, and maybe the Coast Guard once, I'm not sure. He even gained access to Taylor by using an English accent, when he was actually born in Ohio. Which brings us to the final member of this cast. The replacement for Sands was Henry Peavy. Now, this man loved his employer. He spoke very highly of him and was also very protective. Peavy shared openly that he felt he knew who the killer was, but they didn't want to hear it. In 1930, he finally got his day in court. Literally. When he was first questioned by the police, his commentary was limited to only the things he saw when he entered the house that morning of February 2nd. He broke down and he cried uncontrollably. They forbade him to discuss any more about the case. They didn't take it into consideration that Henry Peavy spent most of his waking hours either with this man or caring for his assets. The next time he was brought into the police, he was able to reveal more and he made no issue about pointing the finger. He believed it was Mabel Norman. He claimed that at the end of his shift on the night of the murder, he came in to make sure he could be dismissed when he heard an argument. He waited outside the door for a few moments for it to die down, but was going to be late for an appointment, so he decided to knock. He saw Mr. Taylor and Ms. Norman in the living room, and he asked if he could go. He crossed the room and walked out the front door. He chatted with her chauffeur, who waited along the curb, but then he left the premises. Mr. Taylor's chauffeur, Howard Fellows, was scheduled as was their practice to call Mr. Taylor at 7.20 before bringing the car back to make sure there weren't any final errands. No one answered the phone. He said this as part of his testimony, quote, I called him two or three times before that hour but received no reply. I left the house of my girlfriend at five minutes to eight and drove directly to Mr. Taylor's. I reached there about a quarter past eight. There was a light on in the living room. I was surprised that Mr. Taylor should be home and not have answered the telephone. I rang the doorbell. Silence. I rang again. Still no response. I must have rung three or four times. Then I concluded, well, he has someone there and doesn't want to answer. So I put up the car. I was around back of the house, and it was peculiar that persons in the neighborhood should have heard me walking, but not have heard me put up the car. I made a good deal of noise doing this, as the garage is difficult to get into, and I guess I must have backed the car up four or five times. I am satisfied that I am the man Mrs. Douglas McLean saw standing on the porch and leaving the house. I wore a cap and a raincoat. I noticed no cars in the immediate vicinity and saw no one who aroused my suspicions. End quote. And finally, here's another few side notes for you to chew on. 
If I hadn't stated clearly earlier, let me reiterate. This was the time when the movie industry was very well guarded in the area of the press. Great pains were taken to show their stars in a positive light. The audience, watching their movies in the darkness, created feelings of familiarity. They felt that they knew these people, so studios wanted to make sure the real people lived up to those personas. I'm sure you've heard of the cover-ups done in classic Hollywood that the studios would do to maintain the story created around their stars. William Desmond Taylor was one of the first murders to go public so quickly, and the studio did its best to try and control the narrative. They arrived at the murder scene before the police. They confiscated papers and letters and tax documents just in case they were incriminating. And, in case any rumors that had been floating around that Taylor was a homosexual, it is believed that the studio planted evidence to show that he was involved with women. This backfired when they just accused him of wearing the garments himself, because all of the women in his life testified that they were not intimate with Taylor. A friend from back in his Alaska days would mention, quote, All of the women were interested in him. The country was more or less unconventional, and he was frequently the escort of married women in a perfectly proper way, of course, end quote. It turns out, putting the pieces together, that Mr. Taylor, while he enjoyed the company of women, just might not have been a big fan of physical contact. Number two, everyone took the word of the doctor as gospel, even though no one knew his name and he did not touch the body. So the coroner was not called to the scene for another three hours. Number three, there was so much disruption to the murder scene that by the time the police were able to gain control, new sets of fingerprints were everywhere. Important pieces of the crime scene were relocated. For example, in one report it says that Taylor's office chair was straddling one of his legs. Others say it was knocked on its side. By the time the police arrived, the desk chair was in a completely different room. Number four. Mrs. Douglas McLean notes that she saw someone leaving the Taylor residence around 8 p.m. They looked toward her and didn't seem agitated, so she thought nothing of it. This is what the chauffeur referenced to earlier. Number five. Six cigarette butts were discovered outside Taylor's back door in the alleyway. Now, this was before DNA testing, so don't ask. Number six. A different neighbor reported seeing someone standing across the street leaning against a lamppost for quite some time. Number seven, directions were asked of a gas station attendant as to the residence of William Taylor around 6 p.m. Number eight, the neighbors claimed they heard a gunshot or a car backfire around 8 p.m. And number nine, there are no crime scene photos. None. Nor are there any from the coroner's office either. Now before I get distracted, I need to give a shout out to Taylorology, a website dedicated to the memory of William Desmond Taylor. You can clearly see the love and respect and hours and hours of time and care that was put into his amazing directory. I try to be careful in the reporting the facts because I know they'll call me out on them. I have spent two weeks combing the archives to put this episode together and let me tell you, it was a very difficult thing deciding which things I should put in and which to leave out. There is just so much. I am astonished that with the amount of information they do have on the case, since it was made so very public, 
that no one has ever definitively been called out as the murderer. Each one of our top suspects from earlier have all been called out by someone or another, but no legal official or expert has ever said, this is who done it. I wonder if our modern DNA testing would clear up any of these missing pieces. Hmm. Who would I need to talk to? These episodes get in your head, I tell you. By 1930, Judge Duran all but considers the case closed by summarizing the scene, quote, Taylor's unlocked home and his way of living without a retinue of servants made it comparatively simple for his slayer to enter his bungalow, shoot him, and get away without leaving a single clue. Escape unseen from the bungalow was all that the murderer needed to make the Taylor shooting a perfect crime. And we have had evidence that Miss Norman, Miss Minter, PV, and the other known friends and attendants did leave before the shot was fired. End quote. He railed against another revival to the people, pardon my language, of not letting the case die by saying, quote, The case has been revived for discussion more times than I can remember. Always there has been a repetition of old stories, a dressing up in new garb of the figures in the Taylor murder mystery. And while known persons have been in the case, the central figure has always been some unnamed ghostly personage designated by the press by blanks or asterisks. There were three principal motives under investigation. It was said the crime was committed by a dope ring, but not one particle of evidence was found to connect any of the principals, the dead man or those we questioned, with a dope ring. Love and jealousy were considered. We studied revenge, and the revenge motive was only found in connection with Sands. Sands worked for Taylor, and he ran away. Taylor had threatened his arrest, had filed charges of theft. The net result is that I believe to this day that the Taylor case belongs among the unsolved crime mysteries of the world, and the chances are good that it will remain there, end quote. And with all this missing evidence, missing documents, and even missing suspects, it seems that is just where it has landed and remains still. Although, and if you have another moment, here's one more twist to our story. Hello everyone, Elizabeth Bougeret here from Bag of Bones. I just wanted to interrupt this episode to take a moment to thank you for getting Bag of Bones podcast to over 1,000 downloads. I love creating this podcast for you and I'm happy that you are enjoying it and sharing it with others. To show my gratitude, I'd like to send you a gift. Nothing big, just a little bones swag to say thanks. No catch, no gimmick. All you need to do is click the link and fill out the form, then sit back and wait for it to show up in your mailbox. Click the link, fill out the form. That's it. And thanks from all of us that help put Bag of Bones together for you. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Now that I've given you a cast of characters to choose from, and you're probably already starting to form your own theories, I know I did. Let me throw you for a loop. Eight years after the murder, with several attempts to reinvestigate all being blocked by one source or another, all of the former district attorneys are now out of the way, so to speak, and this new evidence and missing witness comes to light. Suddenly, all the stories take on this new twisted angle. Technically, this spin has spun all the way back 
1926. An inmate at Folsom Prison had come forward as a witness to the William Desmond Taylor murder. He had convinced the governor at the time, F.W. Richardson, enough that his story was credible that he shared it with Buren Fitz, who, as you recall, was a DA at the time. He announced on record, quote, We have reconstructed the scene on the killing and we have built an almost perfect case. Only one link remains to be filled, end quote. That link was that they released the prisoner and, of course, he bolted, you know, for his safety. But reporter George E. Powers found him and brought him back safely to repeat his witness testimony to the Los Angeles Grand Jury. Enter Otis Hefner. I will not leave you in suspense. He flat out pointed the finger at Mabel Norman as the person who pulled the trigger. Wait, 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 wait. There's more. He claims that he got caught up with Edward Sands, who was in Taylor's employ, and was also in the thick of the narcotic ring. Sands, who was supposedly acquiring the dope, delivering it to Taylor, who would in turn disperse the narcotics and receive payment through the exchange of hollowed-out books. When word got out that Taylor had turned rat because he fell in love with Norman is when he started to get death threats by phone, which uh, technically is documented throughout the case. The story, Hefner's story, went down like this. Taylor and Sands had a falling out. He claims that the burglary was fake, which is false because the forged checks are documented and there were repair receipts for the wrecked cars and they do have the pawn shop receipt that Sands used Taylor's real name, Dean Tanner. Hefner says, quote, Words passed around in this dope ring after a while that Taylor had turned rat and was tipping us off to the federal officials. At first, I paid no attention. A lot of that sort of talk was going around, but they kept repeating it, and pretty soon I got really interested and began to think that they meant business. End quote. On the night of the murder, Sands picked up one of Taylor's cars, and they pulled up in front of his Alvarado bungalow around 2 a.m., he tells the court that another car was waiting at the curb with the driver and the motor running. As Sands and Hefner were making their way up to the house, he claims he saw Mabel Norman coming out and running down the steps, got in her car, and it sped away. Sands told Hefner to wait outside while he went in. A moment later, Sands came back out, paused to close the door, and walked quickly to their car. As they sped away from the curb, Sands was to have said, quote, it's time to be going. The old man got his. He stretched out deader than a mackerel. End quote. I know what you're thinking. Didn't I mention that a shot was heard around the 8 o'clock hour? Yes. But the police records had this to say. Quote, Testimony as to the shot being heard was so vague as to be unconvincing. It could not be said with finality that the murder did not occur at midnight or any other hour of the night. End quote. Hefner went on to say that he and Sands parted ways after that. Sands was never seen again, but Hefner managed to get himself arrested and sent to Folsom. Judge Duran fired off his opinion through the Los Angeles Herald, saying bluntly, quote, This is not the first time that it has been reported that the murderer of Taylor has been discovered. The report has always created the greatest sensationalism, and each time the story has been proved to be pure fiction. All of these reiterated blasts of suspicion have been duds. 
if that language may be permitted me to use, end quote. In January 1930, three separate individuals made statements implicating Mabel Norman in Taylor's murder. One, Henry Peavy, the Taylor's ex-servant. Two, Otis Hefner, the ex-convict we just heard from. And three, a Vincent Clark, who was an editor for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Peavy's statement indicated that an argument had taken place between Taylor and Norman during their last visit and that a phone call to Taylor's home at 7.30 had gone unanswered. Clark's statement was never made public, but his wire to Buren Fitz stated, quote, Information obtained by me and given to the district attorney's office December 19, 1922, checks in detail with recent disclosures carried in press relating to Taylor murder case. My statement should be on file. Have acknowledged receipt in my possession, signed by Robert F. Huron, Woolwine's private secretary. That statement could not be located. A man named Harry S. Fields was arrested in connection to the murder and held for questioning in 1922. He admitted to being the driver of a vehicle which, quote, transported the assassins to the director's home, end quote. He added to the claim that there was drug trafficking and Taylor's new interference. He was in a Detroit jail at the time of his confession. He was not taken seriously as he was an opium abuser himself, and he was released. Following the theory of passing drugs through books, one newspaper, the Los Angeles Record, mentioned February 9, 1922, of his character, and according to their theory of the proof that Taylor prefers the company of women, they said, quote, when the fancy of eminent picture director became fixed on a certain woman, he made her the present of a book. It was a book on some subject, not too intimate, that would easily give rise to comment and discussion between the donor and the recipient. This book was followed by another, more intimate in character, which suggested some subjects not hitherto discussed between them. This book suggested another, and so on, and so on. By this time, he would have thoroughly established himself with the woman, end quote. And if you're looking at this innocent post through this new lens, it seems quite plausible. Out in the open, sharing books, getting women addicted, uh, I mean, attracted. All of these stories have been debunked, discredited, or merely dismissed. But I'll leave that for you to decide. William Desmond Taylor's funeral was February 7, 1922, at St. Paul's Cathedral. Some final words by Julia Crawford Ivers. Quote, Today the friends of William D. Taylor, and they are legion, will gather to pay the last tribute to the man they love, to one who as man director and friend measured 100%. I have worked side by side with this man for seven years. We have solved many difficult problems together, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, always hard, trying nerve-wracking. And during all these years of close association, I have never known him to do one unkind, one ungenerous act. But I have known hundreds of instances of open-handed generosity, and in most cases the beneficiary never knew whom to thank. This man whose loyalty and honor were without question who takes with him the undying gratitude of the thousands to whom he has lent a helping hand. This man, who stood for everything that was fine and clean in pictures, who is known to have declared that if it were necessary to his success to produce unclean pictures, 
he would go back to the white, clean snows of Alaska and dig his living out of the ground. This man was shot in the back by a cowardly assassin. He was given no opportunity to defend himself, and William D. Taylor would have defended himself, for he knew not the meaning of the word fear. And more cowardly than the assassin's bullet lodged in the heart of this dear man is the tongue of scandal, which safely sheltered behind his dead body is striking at his reputation, more cowardly, for he is powerless to defend himself. His friends know that when it was all over, the character of Mr. Taylor will stand as it has always stood for everything that is fine and worthwhile. The good book says, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And it is recorded that no stones were cast. End quote. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bag of Bones. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret, and thanks again to Start Fresh Freight Brokering Courses for sponsoring this episode. You'll find their direct links in the show notes. If you are interested in sponsoring a Bag of Bones episode, please reach out to me through the website elizabethbougeret.com. Until next week, then. listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.